Welcome back to Missing. I am Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? Doing great today, Tim. It's been a fantastic start to 2023. The work over here just never seems to cease and we are embracing all of it. I hope everyone out there is doing well in the early stages of this new year. But overall, how are you doing, Tim? Thanks for asking, Lance. I am doing great. And uh, I am excited to share this series that we recorded back in the fall of 2019, Lance, in Saratoga Springs, New York. And we aired it on the Crawl Space podcast, but we wanted to bring it to Missing to introduce it to a new audience. And of course, we have a lot of new listeners now who haven't heard this originally. So we want to play this in its entirety for seven straight episodes, and then we'll have something fresh for the eighth episode in this series. And it's about the unsolved murder of Sheila Shepard, Lance. And this one holds a pretty special place in our hearts and our catalog of work in our experience doing this because it's the first time that any law enforcement agency, this is a Saratoga Police Department, allowed us to go into their police department and look at case files from Sheila's murder and work with the detectives, two great detectives, Callahan and Wilson, and even an old detective who was on the case originally, Tom Mitchell. So it was really unique to us in that way. And you did mention that this is something that aired previously on Crawl Space. And by airing it again on Missing, this is sort of the purpose of what we do with this true crime podcasting and raising awareness and being advocates. Yes, it still exists on Crawl Space, but we are always gaining new listeners and we're always trying to make sure that the previous stuff that we have put out there, people's stories are still being told. So this is the purpose for doing that. Sheila's story is still unsolved. And by re-airing this, it regenerates a new audience or new interest in her murder. And Sheila's case is a cold case from Saratoga Springs, New York. She was 22 years old when her body was discovered in her apartment on November 25th, 1980. And if you have any information in this case, please call the Saratoga Springs Police Department at 518-584-8477. And this audio has been remastered, and we are releasing more video than we did the first time with this. So you can find that on YouTube at youtube.com slash missing CSM. And speaking of finding things, Tim, if one wanted to find this episode remastered without the ads... Where would one go? If you want to hear this without the ads, you can now subscribe to Missing Premium via Apple Podcasts. But if you don't use Apple, you can sign up at missing.supportingcast.fm, and it's just $4.99 a month. You get every episode of Missing ad-free, plus you also get our weekly bonus show. And speaking of finding things, Tim, how would one find us on social media if one were looking for us on social media? Easy. You can find us at Missing CSM. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, 
where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. The naked body of Sheila Shepard was found in her Saratoga apartment this morning by her uncle. She was found lying on her bed with stab wounds. Her family had been notified when her teacher had become worried. The 22-year-old woman was enrolled in a work-study program at the Worldwide Educational Center just down the street from her apartment. She missed class yesterday. Her teacher thought she just might be out of town. Today, the teacher became worried. Because usually um, our enrollees will call in and tell us why they aren't here for the day to work. So that's why we um, tried to find out her whereabouts this morning. The teacher described Sheila as a beautiful girl who was well liked. She had been married and reportedly has a young child, but she lived alone. Police spent hours on the scene collecting evidence. After the body was taken away, police brought out several bags of evidence, but they had little to say. Do you have any reason to believe that this was someone who knew her, though, or this could be a random kind of crime? We have no reason to believe uh, that statement whatsoever, whether it was a, a random situation or someone knew her or what. We don't, we don't know at this point. So far, police have very little to go on. One clue, a next-door neighbor's daughter says she heard screaming about 10.15 last night. But Sheila's teacher says that when they checked on her yesterday morning, the door was locked and a radio was playing. The door was still locked and the radio was still playing this morning when Sheila was found. Mike Moran, 13 News, Saratoga. Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance in the Crawl Space studios in Wormtown. Lance, how are you today? Doing really well. How are you doing today, Tim? I'm doing well. And today, Lance, for this episode, we have the beginning of some casework that we're doing again. Feels good. Yeah, it feels good to be back in Wormtown in the Crawl Space studios, as I like to uh, say, nestled here in the Crawl Space studios. But last week, we were up in uh, Saratoga Springs, New York. And we were walking around with two very fine police detectives and talking about a uh, coming up on 40-year-old unsolved murder. And you're right. It felt good to take charge of that. Yeah, beautiful town, Saratoga Springs. And we met with investigators Chris Callahan and Matt Wilson of the Saratoga Springs Police Department. They were nice enough to allow us to spend a couple of days with them, really, or maybe a day and a half. And so we met these uh, fine gentlemen in Albany, New York, earlier this year, Lance, in April of 2019. They saw our panel with that snappy jacket wearing John Lorden and with the true crime guy, Mike Morford, the one that we did at the American Investigative Society of Cold Cases. It's really crazy how these things come together. So that was back in April, and we do this panel, which is pretty much... Um, I guess kind of a broad stroke of uh, how how you maintain a true crime podcast and just how you go about your daily day-to-day business with it. And they they heard that and they thought to themselves that this might be something to incorporate in this particular murder that they're looking into. And 
the next thing that falls into place for this is their superiors say you have pretty much carte blanche to do whatever you want with this if it's going to shake something loose and and being a part of it is really really special yeah they must have liked something that uh, that we set up there you know we, we were also talking about how we work with law enforcement and with families and try to shake loose tips and things like that and that right. is what they're looking for so if you know any information in the murder of sheila shepherd this is an unsolved murder from saratoga springs new york in 1980 So if you know anything, if you have any information, please call the tip line. The number is 518-584-8477. That's 518-584-8477. And that number is in the show notes as well as Investigator Callahan's direct line. We can probably say that this is the first episode that we're going to do on Sheila Shepard. There's going to be a series of episodes. It's the only unsolved murder in... Saratoga Springs history. It was also profiled by the great John Douglas, who was essentially the founder of the behavioral science unit of the FBI. So there's a profile written on this case and who might have committed this crime. But just from a a layman point of view, not being a detective, you look at this and it's bizarre right off the bat for so many reasons. And you'll hear this unfold during this interview. Yeah, it's a very fascinating case, and what we find out through the course of this conversation that we have with investigators Callahan and Wilson, we find out that the killer spent some time with the body after he or she killed Sheila. Now, Sheila was murdered right before Thanksgiving. They found her body on November 25th. They estimated her to be murdered probably two days before that, over the weekend. She was 22 years old. And she had just moved back into the area. She'd been there for a few months. She had a young daughter, and she was estranged from her husband. When you look at a murder that has a clear rage element to it, multiple stab wounds or bruising, you can put together a a much more solid scenario as to what happened. And what really is a a brain scratcher on this one, to give a a John Lorden shout-out here, is that there's no bruising, there's no signs of struggle. She's tied to a bed, but there's no multiple uh, bruising marks or tie marks on her wrists or her feet. Like, where she was tied was where her limbs stayed. All of this seems to be post-mortem. That's right, Lance. So the killer spent some time with Sheila after he or she killed her, and he or she also stabbed Sheila in the abdomen once as we go over in the interview with the investigators. But what we found out from our new friend at the University of New Hampshire, she's a forensic anthropology professor. Her name's Amy Michael. We found out that the killer spent no less than a half an hour with Sheila after killing her because the puncture wound of the knife there, there was no blood. We were told that. We were told that there was there was one single drop of blood, but when we saw the picture of the knife in the body, I didn't see any drop of blood. It must have been incredibly minute, but it was only from the initial puncture wound into, into, into her stomach. And what we found out from Amy at the uh, University of New Hampshire, because what occurred to us was how long would somebody have to stay with the body in order for the blood to stop flowing to the point where it's not coming out from a stab wound. And what we found out from Amy at UNH was based on the the lack of blood flow from the wound and the discoloration on Sheila's body, 
that knife would have had to have gone into her, like you said, no sooner than a half hour after the death. And we're not even sure how she exactly died, as you'll find out in this interview. She had she had a piece of fabric stuffed in her mouth, but that doesn't really cause the level of asphyxiation that they're talking about. There was no there was no vomit in the throat. There was essentially no sign of her trying to like get this thing out of her mouth. So that could have been post mortem as well. And I mentioned the discoloration on her body from the blood. That suggests a certain period of time that she was laying there, which is how they determined that she was probably murdered Saturday into Sunday and she was discovered on Tuesday. So it was a couple of days worth of this lividity of blood. Yeah, and so you can see why this is a really interesting case. It's still unsolved. There was a profile done by John Douglas, which we got a little bit of info from. All right, so I think you'll really enjoy this series. You will be hearing more from the Sheila Shepard case, investigators Chris Callahan and Matt Wilson. And might I say, Tim, you'll be hearing more and you'll be seeing more because we took a crew up with us. We took a film crew up with us and we interviewed not only Matt and Chris, we also interviewed the original detective from the case and we interviewed Sheila's aunt, whose husband at the time was the one who actually found Sheila's body. So, guys, just when you thought we weren't going to dig deep... for uh, coming coming back and talking yeah. about this case with Absolutely. us. Absolutely. Really appreciate it. Um, yeah, so you brought in some of these pictures, and uh, we'll just start at the beginning. Um, Sheila Shepard was 22 years old, and she was murdered on November 25th of 1980. Um, can you take us back to, uh, back to the scene of the crime? Uh, well, what, uh, what was thought from the, the time of death, coroner's report, police investigation, they think she was actually killed. November 25th was a Tuesday uh, morning. That's when she's found, when the, the police investigation begins. Uh, what was determined was that she was actually killed sometime late Saturday night, early Sunday morning, which have been the 22nd into the 23rd. The timeline's a little hazy, and when she's last confirmed seen alive, um, but it's going to be some point on that Saturday. And then there's there's different sightings, different people are interviewed that were out um, out in our downtown area in Saratoga on that, that Saturday night that say they they saw her at certain bars, but then a lot of them are, are kind of hazy. Like, well, I can't be sure if it was actually Saturday into Sunday, may have been Friday into Saturday. But uh, but she's, she's definitely found uh, for sure on Tuesday morning. Um, early morning, again, she's enrolled in a, a secretarial school at the time, was called Worldwide Enterprises, right, um, right down the block from her apartment. The teacher had sent a couple of students over to, to look for her. She didn't report for, for class two days in a row. And uh, once they couldn't get into the apartment, got no response, knocked on the doors, when they, um, they go back, teacher calls uh, Sheila's mother, who comes to the house with her, her aunt and uncle, and the uncle's one who comes through. The, the picture on the left there is the, that's the, the fire escape that he comes in through that you could see from um, when we were at the apartment yesterday. He came up that fire escape because the front door was locked, uh, stepped through the window, and um, actually has to step right, like right over. over her. Yes, yeah. yep. and she was, um, according to him, she was, she was found, she was covered with a blanket um, or sheet at that time, but like the feet were, were sticking out. He calls out to her. There's no response. So he says it's obviously there's something wrong there going on. He pulls back the, the sheet and sees that 
you know, she does appear to be to be deceased. Um, then goes and calls the police, and our investigation begins from from there. I can imagine that he saw her through the window. He said he could see her through the window, but again, that she's she's covered. Yeah. So he knows she's she's in the bed there, but just that she's not not responding to his his calling out her name. And he can't see anything other than part of her head. Um, was her head fully covered, or was it? I think it says the head was fully covered. There's a leg protruding out of the out of the side of the sheet. Okay. I think he I mean, sees on the this bottom right here something like that, you know, you saw her, yeah, that there's someone in the bed. And she her feet are tied with her shoe her own shoelaces. Correct. Yes, and then this is like a um um what do you call it? Terry like cloth. a belt, yeah, from a, a, robe. a terry cloth robe. That's oh, okay, that's tying her hand. Yeah. And I can't remember what the the fourth tie is now. I believe it's going to be something similar to the there's two two shoelaces and I think two kind of sashes like that tying the uh, tying the hands. And that okay. was Sheila's robe. We believe so, yeah. And she's tied uh, she's tied spread eagled, so she's got all you know two hands, two feet that are you know all directions tied to the uh, tied to the bed frame. But it, even just looking looking closely at it, it doesn't doesn't really appear that you know she's she's tied down before death because. The, the shoelaces are flimsy. They're not any sort of intricate knots. Um, they said they were kind of like just a, like a double overhand, you know, like you tie your shoe with. And mm -hmm. there's no uh, there's no abrasion marks on her. It doesn't look like anything. She's struggling against the ties. So the the theory was, and it it definitely I agree that makes sense that she's tied up after she's she's already dead. And what else happened after she died? She had a um, what was it a, a blouse? It's it a it's a belt that went to like a uh, like a coat uh, like a cloth belt that went to a woman's coat uh -huh. or uh, maybe a sweater or something like a throw. Yeah, we actually spoke to the owner of that. She said she had let her borrow it, um, but it was like a, a cloth sla uh, sash that was tied over her mouth, um, stuffed down down her down in, into her mouth, and then the steak knife was was uh, piercing her abdomen. It was a steak knife. Correct. So all that was after she was dead. Mm -hmm. Single, the one single stab wound, there's, there's no blood coming from the area. I think there might be a drop where it pierces the, the flesh, but it's not like, you know, if you stab someone and they're alive and they're actively still, yeah. you know, still spurting blood. So it, it, it looks like it's probably even, I wouldn't say quite a while, but it's, you know, time has passed that she's been dead before somebody sticks this, uh, this knife into her abdomen, which... Obviously, is the part that that doesn't really make make sense. Yeah, was it from her apartment? It, it matches uh, the set that she has in her um, yeah in her kitchen her kitchen drawer. There's actually um, original detectives had pictures in there of all her the cutlery and had seized all this other cutlery that we you know still uh, still have now that yeah matches her her set. So it looks like somebody just went through her set. Yeah, I don't know if it's if it was sitting spontaneous. On the table, or, yeah. So what is the cause of death? Asphyxiation. So, like someone suffocated her or strangled her, or no, would have uh, wouldn't have been strangled. Would have been you know suffocated or that um, the, uh, the belt or whatever. Yeah, if that's down, if that's you know um, restricting her her airway. The only thing that with that is there's no um, there's not a lot of vomit on her or from or on that that object, which you would think if that is the actual item that caused. Yeah. The death that that would have caused some sort of gag 
uh, you know, reflex and, and vomit, but could have been a, could have been a pillow yeah. placed overhead. You know, we obviously don't, uh, can't say for sure on that. What was her life like? Who was, who was she? Well, she was pretty much born and raised in, in Saratoga Springs. Her uh, father had her when he was, um, he was in the military, stationed down in, in Florida, um, has Sheila down there. She was born in 1958. They move uh, back to Saratoga Springs, and she's, she's very young. Uh, grows up there. Um, she ends up meeting a, um, a guy who's also in the military that she gets married to. Um, they go away while well, he's stationed different places. They're, um, they're stationed in Germany. He's then stationed in, in California. She lived in Germany? Yes. Um, then in, um, in California with him, uh, they have a, a young daughter, as you can see in some of the pictures. She was uh, three at the time that, that Sheila was murdered. Um, Sheila had left, left her husband in, uh, in California. They had, had split up. And she went to live in Colorado for a time, which is the the ones you can see with the the mountains in the background there. That is her um, her aunt Terry that you're going to meet later on today. That's actually the uh, wife of the the uncle who who discovers Sheila in the apartment. Terry. Terry. Uh, okay. Terry Armstrong uh, was married to Charles Bousseau at the time, who's the one that goes through the uh, the window and finds her. But Sheila had. She left California where her husband was stationed, uh, took the baby to, to Colorado and stayed with Terry and uh, Charles for a time there. So that's where Terry was living in Colorado? That's why, why yes. they went there? Mm -hmm. And then she made her way back to Saratoga Springs after that? Uh, yes, her husband actually comes and, and takes, the, uh, takes the baby with her permission, takes their, their daughter Sativa, comes back to Saratoga where, uh, where his parents are living in the time or just outside of. And then Sheila, um, a little while later, makes her way back to Saratoga, I want to say in August of 1980. Yeah, end of August or August. So the kid was living in Saratoga as well in the same, same town as Sheila, but just not in the same residence. Well, just outside. It's, okay. um, yeah. it's called Greenfield. It's just like the kind of rural surrounding okay. area of, uh, of Saratoga. His parents ran a like an RV park okay. there that the, uh, the daughter was with Richard Shepard's parents. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Kickoff for Super Bowl 34. The Titans-Rams 2000 Super Bowl, an instant classic. Hours after the game, two men were stabbed in the street, accused of being in the middle, the greatest linebacker, in NFL history. Ray Lewis and two friends are charged with murder. The nation's eyes were glued to their televisions. The trial concluded and the verdicts came back. Not guilty. What you can learn from all this is that big cases make for big mistakes. Look what happened in OJ Simpson. And look what happened in Ray Lewis. Lewis went on to have a Hall of Fame career, but questions around that night in Atlanta still remain. So what do you think they're hiding? They know what happened. 
They know exactly what happened. After 20 years, it's time to get to the bottom line truth. From Tenderfoot TV, I'm Tim Livingston, and this is The Raven. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For ad-free listening and early access, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus on tenderfootplus.com. Sometime in the early 80s, REO Speedwagon's airplane made an unannounced middle-of-the-night landing. This is my friend Kyle McLaughlin, the star of Twin Peaks. And he's telling me about how he discovered a real-life Twin Peaks in rural North Carolina, not far from where he filmed Blue Velvet. What was on the plane was copious amounts of drugs coming in from South America. Supposedly, Pablo Escobar went looking for other spots, quiet, out-of-the-way places to bring in his cocaine. My name is Joshua Davis, and I'm an investigative reporter. Kyle and I talk all the time about the strange things we come across, but nothing was quite as strange as what we found in Varnumtown, North Carolina. There's crooked cops, brother against brother. Everyone's got a story to tell, but does the truth even exist? Welcome to Varnumtown. Varnumtown is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. And how long after they split up, Sheila and Richard, um, did was she killed? May of 1980 is when, when she moves back to, to Saratoga for good. And in uh, 1978 is when her and, her and Richard had, had split up. Oh, okay. And that's when he saw a couple of years, okay. two years. And but they maintain connection contact yeah yeah them. they had okay. um they had been in in contact it um it sounds like and from everyone that we've talked to there was no custody dispute there was no fighting over who should have the baby it seemed like they they both kind of agreed that the the baby was better off with his parents that neither one were in a really good place to raise a hmm. you know to raise a child at the time she was like 20 she was 22 when or, she died well when she had the baby yes yeah, she gets married in uh Married to him in 76, they moved to Germany. They moved, okay, so I want to say that she, uh, Sativa was born in 77, her, her daughter, so she yep. would have been, yeah, 19. 19, and how old was he? Uh, Richard, I don't have his uh, exact date of birth memorized. He's a couple years older, okay. but you know he's also you know early 20s. Yeah, it's impressive that they would have the self-awareness to say the child's not yeah. you know, in yeah. the best hands with us. That seems that, uh, that age. right. Pretty, pretty mature. Both of them. He had, he had been to Saratoga um, a couple months before she's killed. Mm-hmm. Actually, maybe like a month, a month and a half. And they had um, apparently he was coming to Saratoga to talk about, you know, what's what's our our plan going forward? Are we gonna split totally? Are we gonna try to get back together? Are we gonna, you know, see if we can make this work? And it sounds like at that time that they. Both come to an understanding that no, this is is not going to work. It's not what what we want going forward. Um, and like I said, apparently he there's no issue over custody or you know who's going to have the child because even after after she's killed, um, Sativa ends up living with uh, with his parents going forward. So he never actually retained custody or got full custody at any point, even after the uh, you know the baby's mother is killed. So they were trying to work it out from. From like May, she moved back permanently, 1980. Yes. Okay. Yeah, May May of 80, January of 1980. It sounds like she comes she comes back to Saratoga for a visit, 
from, uh, from when she's out in Colorado and then goes back out west and then in May moves home for, for good, um, gets enrolled in this uh, secretarial school down the street and is um, putting all her friends that, that we talked to and everyone at the time, that was her, her motivation was to get, get herself back on her feet, get a career so then she can be a, be a mother and you know, take, uh, take Sativa full time. And that was what, like I said, what all her friends, that was her motivation to, to be going to the school. Where was Richard living at the, at the time of Sheila's death? Long Island. Okay. He's so out in quite Green, a ways away. Yeah, he's out in Greenport, Long Island, which is almost all the way, you know, out to the end of the island. So he's he's out there. That's a few hour trek just to get here, right? At yeah. least four hours driving, I would say at least. I mean, easy if you're going with, with no traffic. Was she dating at the time? Not uh, not exclusively. I mean she had different different boyfriends listed in the in the case file, different people that she had seen, you know, socially. She's um, she's twenty two. So, you know, still, still young, still, still going out, you know, a lot and socializing. So nobody that, nobody that we, you know, see or that comes out from the original case files that was like a steady, you know, low exclusive boyfriend. And why did you two get involved in this? And who are the original detectives? The original te uh, detectives, there was uh, Tom Mitchell. Um, Dan Jewett was another investigator that, that handled it. They were the primaries. Uh, Tom Mitchell was um, was an investigator at the time that, like I said, did did a lot of the the original investigation, a lot of the original interviews with uh, with Dan Jewett. Um, uh, Ken King was the detective lieutenant at the time, ran the division. He's done some of the follow up stuff with um, with Tom um, as well. What what happened with the case files? They they uh, they. They started the case. They worked on it for how long, and then, uh, then where did it until, go? Until I mean, they. Uh, I, I know talking with with Tom, he's like, you know, I, I worked the case until until I retired. You know, right yeah. up until you know, there's still. You could see you get a progression going through of like, all right, 1980, ton of tips, ton of you yeah. know follow ups, and then you get into 81, and it kind of okay less, but still there's still some good leads and things yeah. coming in. 82, a little bit less, and then. You know, from there, it just gets fewer and further between that a tip comes in or a call. And then it's always been an open investigation with our department. There's been a um, couple of tips throughout the years. I think like 2005, we got, there's a call that just came in out of, you know, out of nowhere. We have a 24-hour tip hotline with our department that somebody called in, you know, something with this case, you know, go talk to, to this person. And then I think that would have been it from 2005 up until... Um, you know, Matt and I had kind of started, took our turn looking, yeah. looking into it, and we did a couple of stories of local local media, local newspaper, and generated not nearly as many tips as we'd have liked. I think we got like six new calls yeah. that uh, you know we followed up with, and we've got we got a list of our own, just going through people we want to talk to again, or just to re-interview them, just to see if we can make paint a better picture than. Reading, just reading yeah. the stuff. You know? It's it's interesting coming from this point of view in 2019, and thinking back to 1980, which doesn't really sound like it was that long ago, but it was 40 years ago, yeah. right? Yeah, almost 40 years ago, and everything that's changed, like with technology. Is it frustrating to look through these, and seeing like um, how slow communication was back then, mm -hmm. 
compared to now? We've definitely got it easier. You know, we, yeah. we've got it much easier than these guys. Um, you know, I've said a bunch of times, like, I don't even know how, you know, how do you come by some of these tips or some of these avenues to follow up of, uh, you know, there was a, a rape in Ithaca, New York, or, yeah. you know, somebody that got killed in Buffalo. Like, you may want to look at this guy because he could be connected how that information even makes its way to Saratoga Springs. Right, and then, so you call up from Ithaca, you call up Saratoga Springs because you somehow think that they would be interested in it. Or even like, knew that, that this murder occurred. And that, then, uh, you, like, you have right. to rely on the other department mm -hmm. uh, making that connection on their own. Sure. Someone's got to make the Someone's got to yeah. make that connection. Mm -hmm. Call up, that person on the receiving end has to be receptive to that, and then they have to somehow get the information back yeah. and forth. So do they take a trip down there? Do they, like, mail it? There's, you know, it? there's a lot of like teletype stuff, you yeah. know, going through, um, there's faxes, there's, um, just handwritten, you know, uh, so-and-so detective wasn't working today, but I took a call for you from this guy and just a, you know, synopsis kind of note yeah. type thing. And there was, you know, I'm sure they didn't have voicemail, individual voicemails right. like we do now right. where no cell phones. Yeah. I mean, I pictured yeah. them like smoking a cigarette and the ashes are like hitting the probably, you yeah, know, the, it was the like shoulder holsters and yeah, yeah. shoulder holsters. Yeah. 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 So this is a pretty big case file. It, it seems like a few binders here. We're not experts in thick. case files. Yeah. Is this one of the bigger case files you guys have come across at the station? I mean, for this, it, 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 it's, it's, you know, we have case files that we've kept, you know, um, for certain cases, this one's probably one of the bigger ones, um, just because of the paperwork it generated. Um, when you go through it, even even the memos he's talking about, when it, when somebody took a, a phone call, you know, we have there's memos in there from 1986, took a phone call from such and such, you know, and they would jot it down, and it went in the case file. So that helped. That's helpful. It wasn't discarded, um, and it may not have been important then or no one thought it was a significant but it's one of those things we want to look at just in case you know it was missed or overlooked did any anywhere in the case file any tips come in where someone said this person confessed to me in this murder or anything like that there's a, there's actually quite a few of those really yeah. really there's a lot of uh, I don't I mean a lot of they're all followed up they're all interviewed there was I remember one the mother called in a son because she uh, he was lazy and she wanted him to get a job, so she thought that by a sheriff's deputy coming to talk to him, that would motivate him to, to get out and, and find a job. There's, I mean, there's all all sorts. Like I said, this was a, a huge you know story in Saratoga Springs at the time, yeah. you know, and, and still, you know, 40 years later, a pretty big story because we don't get these unsolved murder type things. So crazy people calling in just to get attention, people calling in on their acquaintance because they are crazy and that's enough of a reason to think they're the killer is okay this guy's crazy you want to look at look into him or you know this this guy once said to me you know we we're dating I'm gonna kill you so I think it was him and you know they we had one of those not uh, not too long ago no it was yeah it was one of those things where he, he you know somebody showed a particular interest in a, in a, in a cold case I can't remember if it was this one or not but the girlfriend kind of took notice of it and uh, he was always kind of weird to me and stuff, so obviously maybe that's he had something to do with this. Yeah, you know, but it's just like they, it's like your your urban legend. Everyone talks about this case for for years on. So, was there a toxicology report done? Yes, there was as uh, as part of her her autopsy. Okay, and she was uh, she did have some alcohol in her system. 
Yep, she did have uh, some alcohol in her system. She was at a at a point two five or point zero two five BAC at the time, which blood alcohol content. So that's intoxicated. At the time of autopsy, and she's you know. This is at the time of the autopsy. Yeah. Yeah. And was that change from the time she dies? I know it is. I couldn't. I mean, I'm not an expert as far as yeah. what how it breaks down. I know it's a different rate of okay. you know where if you're staying awake, you know you're going to go down at a you know, more of a, a scientific measure of how much your, your BACs can go down. I couldn't tell you once you're, once you're deceased at what rate. I'm assuming it's much slower. Mm -hmm. You know, the alcohol is breaking down in your mm -hmm. system. So was there, a, like, a lot of empty uh, alcohol containers in her apartment or something? Or is, it, or is that kind of a, a clue to say that she got intoxicated somewhere else that night? A little bit of both. Yeah, I mean, there wasn't a whole... They didn't, they didn't say there was a significant amount of alcohol bottles or beer cans or any of that kind of stuff that that, that seemed to jump out at them. I know there was a bottle of... Uh, it's a bottle of vodka. Vodka. There's, there's bottles in the apartment, but everyone that, that was talked to at the time, it's like I said, the, the timeline is, is the kind of sketchy part of when she's out and where she's out at, but everyone seems to be in agreement that she was out that night mm -hmm. at you know one of the uh one of the bars you know downtown in saratoga springs and we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors thanks to our sponsors and now we're back to the program so she was asphyxiated that's the cause of death yes and she was tied up afterwards and stabbed afterwards how, how rare is that um extremely yeah, for in saratoga <laughs> very extreme yeah yeah, yeah i mean we Never heard of a case this. So there's no uh, other like case this. that has like a similar mo to it. Any any in, in other? In our city, yes. No, yeah. I mean no. Right. Yeah. You know. There were calls that came in. That that's I think how they got some of these tips was that I know there was one from from Albany where it was a I think it was a medical examiner or coroner that had seen something where somebody was stabbed post mortem and it jumped out to them because even in Albany where they have you know, much larger number of murders in per year than we do in Saratoga that it stood out to them like, oh, Saratoga had something. And he mentions somewhere in whatever that, that tip from the medical examiner, he says, I've never seen another one, you know, in my, my career. So it's, I mean, even just hearing stories, you know, nationwide, I don't know if too many of someone is after death, you know, stabbed. Yeah, so, so the person, the killer, took Sheila's shoelaces out of her own shoes um, grabbed a couple of uh, little, it looks like a, a bathrobe tie is, is what you said, and um, tied her up. Doesn't seem like she, a struggling Sheila probably couldn't have gotten out of that. Um, it almost feels like ritualistic in a weird way. Like all that happened afterwards. What, what is the, is there a working motive or theory that you guys have on that? Why that would ha have happened? And there's a couple theories that maybe it was to throw us off or throw mm -hmm. the police off. Just to like confuse the scene. Confuse the scene. Um, that was that was a, a thought. Thought it could have been a, you know, just a consensual sex gone, gone bad. You know that she's possibly accidentally smothered. But yeah. then you know again, like Matt said, to to make us think that it's you know you know something ritualistic or or somebody that's that's madder has some sort of rage. You know, like okay, well, I'm going to stab her because that's when you do when you're mad to someone, but. If it's like a rage killing, you don't see one stab wound. It would, yeah, more, more than one certainly stab, not yeah. after they're dead. Yeah. yeah, and there's been no other victims, right? So if it was some sort of ritual, 
I would even, there has, there's been no other rumors of, of not, like, not in, you know, not in, in Saratoga or any of our surrounding, you know, areas that we know of, of anything like, um, you know, like this certainly. So, um, we, we don't know, obviously we, we don't know, but just, uh, you know, talking, talking to different people, even I think text was the time you get, you know, a handful of different answers, talking to a handful of different people. It could have been someone passing through that she, yeah. you know, had the misfortune of meeting that night and this was was their was their thing but we you know never jumped out at us because the person then moved on to you know Oklahoma City or yeah you know any other city in, in America in now was there a sign of rape or no no okay so even if this killer was out with Sheila that night and drunk perhaps this person was comfortable being with her body mm -hmm. after he or she killed her sure for how long do you know or do you think some you know some amount of time enough um, enough time that they're they're putting the shoes back you know after they take the shoelaces out they're closing the window when they're going out they're tying her up they're like stabbing I said, the, her. the stab yeah. wound isn't well blood is still pumping there's no spurting blood there's no you know blood stains anywhere it's you know enough that the blood in her body is stopped pumping altogether so when the knife pierces her her dead body there's a single drop of you know the entry yeah. of the knife so it's you know it's it's in a decent amount of time like you said where they're they're comfortable they're you know methodical and they weren't expecting anybody to come to her apartment in any short any period of time so right. obviously yeah. they weren't they weren't they weren't expecting anybody to to show up there so either it was in the middle of the night okay that's interesting you know, Be if they what does that mean? That means that there wasn't any screaming. Yeah, I mean... It, because if there was screaming, I would imagine that they would be fearful that someone would call somebody. There's reports when the students come to go see where she is, they can hear music from inside the apartment. Inside her apartment? Inside her apartment, radio playing. And then witnesses from, from the surrounding uh, apartments state they hear music playing. Um, the uncle, when he goes to knock on the door, when he tries the door first, yeah. he can hear the music inside. So there's music drowning out. It was obviously loud enough that they can hear it outside the apartment. So does that drown anything? I, I don't know. There was music playing from the time of her death, which was Saturday into Sunday, maybe? Yes. To Tuesday. Till Tuesday, like a radio playing in the background. Loud enough where people could hear it outside. They can hear it in the, at least in the, in the, uh, in the hallway and outside the apartment. I don't know yeah. if they can hear it from the street or anything. Okay. But I, you know. And the neighbors heard it though. Downstairs neighbor thinks that she hears some, like sort of like party get together, but I think she describes it as like not a, you know, not a, a house party, but like a three or four yeah. person maybe hanging out, gathering, drinking. you know. Yeah. So subdued, but that definitely sounds like there's more than just Sheila in the apartment. So you're thinking that um, because the door, there was no forced entry. No. And the, the deadbolt, the top one, was locked from the inside. It's not 100% on that. That is what the um, Shields uncle, who discovers the body, he goes out through, the, through this door. Oh, he, okay. He leaves that way and goes, so he was asked at the time, and we asked him again. Obviously, he's going to be much less clear in the memory of it, but we're like, did you have to unlock that deadbolt? Are yeah. you sure? He's like, yes, I, I want to say that I did, but he's like, I'm also just discovered my dead niece in you know, murder in an apartment, yeah. so I'm, yeah. I'm fumbling to get out of this apartment. So he's like, I'm not obviously the most clear that I've ever been. And right. 
but when people came back into the apartment, it was open. It was open. They, they noted in the case report that it was locked. So he, he does say something to the effect of the police officers, yeah, I did unlock it or I had to unlock it. But he does go out because the mom and the aunt are actually in the front door downstairs, and he goes out this door to tell them not to come up. Oh. And then talks to, I'm not sure, is the downstairs neighbor or one of the neighbors? One of the neighbors in the apartment actually calls the police for them because they start screaming, call the police, and the neighbor comes out. So when he goes up to knock on the door and he hears music, he obviously, I guess he tries, he tries the door. It, yeah, he tries the door, it's locked, so they tell him, yeah, try the fire escape. She yeah. usually keeps that window unlocked. Okay. Um, so, the, so that's when he goes up the, up the fire and escape. And he comes in, opens it opens up. Opens it up. So the thinking is that the person who killed her leaves through the fire escape and shuts the window. That's the thinking now. At the time, a set of her keys were, were missing. Oh. And that was, uh, so that was a big, um, I'd say a big, like, hunt or something that was, you know, being pursued was we find these keys, you know, we find her killer because yeah. somebody took took the keys out of the apartment, but then they're later turned into the police where uh, some kids across the street find them like at the bus stop. And it's like, um, I want to say it's like when the snow is like melting. So like, you know, spring. They or, find or keys early. and then they turn them into the police. Yes. Did they know, did they have any thought that I it think might it was be the, keys? I think it was the father that knew that, you know, they're right across the oh. street from, from the apartment. So obviously everyone in that yeah. neighborhood knows, you know, that this woman's been killed in there. So now it could be the person took her keys and locked the door. Locked the door on the way out. Yeah. Oh, wow. And I guess, like, does that, does that matter? It certainly doesn't, doesn't clear it up any for us, you know, because yeah. if anything, that just opens it up to, you know, that many more, you know, suspects. It feels a little more personal even through the door and the fire escape. But less suspicious to neighbors if anyone sees somebody walking out the door as opposed to walking out of a fire escape. Climbing out the window. Yeah. yeah. Were there any yeah. eyewitnesses? No.